0: Welcome to the 29th episode of The Whistleblowers after another uh, hiatus, uh, some time off here while we, we deal with coronavirus like everybody else. But uh, I'm Luke DeCock from the News and Observer. With me as always, John Clockerty, the Hall of Famer. We have some exciting guests on this episode. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, not basketball specific necessarily, but uh, other than the Clockertys, probably the first family of North Carolina officiating uh, and officiating journalism. Uh, so Ryan McGee, Jerry McGee, and Sam McGee will join us uh, in a little bit to talk about their book, Sidelines and Bloodlines, which tells the story of, of Jerry's career as a football official and what it meant to their family. John, it's, uh, it's good to talk to you after a little while off. I hope you're doing okay. I'm doing great. You know, um, yeah,
1: we've had a, a lull here because of the bars and, um, you know, but maybe we can get caught up, and there's a lot going on, a lot of different things that we could talk about. Certainly, I read uh, Dr. McGee's book uh, uh, written by his son, and uh, Jerry McGee and, and I have become friends, and uh, really, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting book because we have uh, things I could relate to. We kind of have same career patterns, uh, different officiating different sports, but it, at different levels, and then raising to the highest level uh in in college officiating so I really enjoyed reading the book and uh it was easy for me to relate actually uh Tim uh my oldest son who referees basketball gave it to me as a as a gift and uh I've I've gone through it and it's a nice light easy reading and a lot
0: of uh humor in it also yeah some great some great stories in there and and unlike your boys, none of none of his sons went into officiating. I guess they they saw enough of it. Unlike uh, unlike Tim and Connor, who who followed in your footsteps to a degree, Tim certainly. But uh, we'll get we'll get to that uh, uh, shortly. And then you know the other big news out there, uh, basketball schedules finally coming out after what seemed like an interminable delay. And while we figure out what that means for teams and players, we're going to talk a little bit about what that means for officials, because it's going to be a very different season for them too, as, as as most people, I think, assumed, but the degree to which it's going to be different is, I think, a little surprising for everyone. So we'll get to that in a little bit. First, John, let's bring on the McGee's. We are thrilled to be joined by the McGee family, Jerry, Ryan, and Sam, uh, the authors collectively of a uh, terrific new book, "Sidelines and Bloodlines: A Father, His Sons, and Our Life in College Football," uh, about uh, Jerry's officiating career and and his sons uh, going along for the ride. So, uh, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, for joining us today.
2: Absolutely, I'll be with you, uh,
0: Jerry. I wanted to ask you right right off the top, um, what was it? Uh, how how did how did your boys rope you into writing this book anyway?
2: Well, it's funny, over the years as we've spoken to touchdown clubs and sportsmen's clubs and rotary clubs, at the end of the meeting, there's always a person to come by and say, gee, those are great stories, we need to write a book. Of course, we're all too busy to write a book. So uh, over the years, we took notes, and I wrote down stories about funny things that happened, and uh, we finally had some time. Now that I'm retired, we had some time to finally get together and, and put the stories in a book.
0: Ryan and Sam, what was the process like sort of taking all these things that you'd grown up with and then packaging them for, for public consumption?
3: Sam, you will go first?
0: <laughs> um,
4: well, one of the first things we had to do is figure out which stories are going in the book and which stories stories aren't going in the book and kind of sat down and went through them and and a lot of a lot of having lunch was involved in writing this book. We have lunch, we get together and say, well, what do you remember about this? And what do you remember about that? And and figure out which stories to use. And in fact, now, every time we do something like this, uh, some story comes out. And invariably, by the end of this discussion today, there'll probably be something where we're talking to each other on the phone later and say, well, why wasn't that in the book?
3: Yeah. yeah. Luke, that was, that was my problem was I'm trying to corral all of this. And, uh, and, you know, the book came out a month ago. And we, we, it went to the printers back in, what, June or July. And, uh, and ever since then, every time I talk to Sam or talk to dad, they tell me another story. And I'm like, man, I probably should have put that in the book. But I didn't <laughs> that's, that's the part of it that surprised me is I thought I knew all the stories. I knew my stories. And I thought I knew all of dad's best stories. And I thought I knew all of Sam's best stories. And literally the first time Sam and I sat down and had one of these lunches, uh, back in the fall of a year ago. It was like he's, he told me three stories that I had no idea. And, and then every time I talk to dad now, there's a story I had no idea. So that's the part that surprised me was I thought I thought I knew all the stories. It just was a matter of getting the details right and what year did it happen and whatever else. And the reality was I knew I might have known 30, 33% of the stories, tops.
0: So let me backtrack for a second here. So so Jerry was a longtime college Football official uh, Ryan now a college football writer, radio, television host for ESPN, and Sam, you are a lawyer in Charlotte who I guess is the one who kind of veered off on his own his own track. Or are you secretly an official and I don't know that?
4: No, I, I screwed up. Now, I, you know, we joke about that, and I joke with my wife about that. It's like, wait a minute, Ryan's over here doing this sports writing thing. Dad had this officiating career that took him all over the place, and then even in his college administrator career, you know, combining those two, he ends up doing a lot of work with the NCAA and things like that. Here I am doing something completely different. But um, I will say that we talked a lot about whether or not I should have become an official a long time ago. And my theory at the time was that I didn't want a hobby uh, that was stressful because I already had a stressful job. And that when I go fishing, if I blow it and don't catch a fish, nobody screams at me and calls me an SOB or throws anything at me. Um, uh, but here's, here's the, the, the secret that I missed. Dad had a hobby that was a command performance. He had to be there. And so it was really not an option to have that hobby fall by the wayside when his job, which was very demanding, uh, got in the way. And that, that's, that's kind of what I missed because what's happened with me a lot during my career is, you know, the fishing or the hiking or whatever it might be just may not happen uh, because the work is getting in the way. And, and so, uh, so that's, I think that's, that's one little piece I missed when I was a younger man thinking about whether or not I wanted to follow in dad's
0: footsteps. So Jerry, you had a long career in academia, president of Wingate University at, at the end there, but went all over the place. Your, your kid's childhood sounds a little like being in, being in the army, uh, bouncing around from town to town. Uh, but, but backtrack for a second. How did you actually get started in officiating? And for people who don't know, walk, walk us the very brief highlights. I realized you could write a book about it. Uh, right. walk, us, walk us through your, your career very, very quickly.
2: I will. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, Bill Usler, who was in everybody's Hall of Fame, is in the Wake Forest Hall of Fame as a football and, and a baseball player. He's in North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame, North Carolina High School Coaches Hall of Fame. But he was my high school coach. And, uh, and I was not playing football my senior year, and I was concentrated on baseball. And so he's, he wanted to start a junior high team in all the local junior highs. Where the kids could learn the offenses and defenses before they came to the high school, and so he walked in with that, threw four officiating shirts to me, and said, "You're in charge of the officials," and that's how I became an official. And uh, I'm not sure I ever got paid for any of those games, but uh, and then when I got to college, I started playing intramural football, and it was so boring. And some of the officials said, you know a lot about the game. Why don't you come out and ref?" So uh, it's a nice way to make some side money, and and uh, so I I started right there. I started in uh, working junior high games from a high school coach and then working uh, intramural games in college. And I always laughingly say, Luke, if, if you can officiate a Sigma Nu Pica, you can handle Michigan Notre Dame because it's uh, it, it's quite competitive and uh, uh, there's usually a little, a few inebriated players. So it's uh, it made for an interesting day of trying to officiate.
0: And then just... Very briefly, if you were to give your, your officiating resume in two or three lines, how would you sum it up?
2: Uh, fortunate to be on a high school crew where there was a retiring college official on the crew that introduced me to all the right people in, in college football and then having a small college uh, supervisor who believed in me enough to recommend me to the Atlantic Coast Conference and, uh, and then some very demanding but very fair supervisors along the way that uh that made me get better at my trade so uh that and you know you you aspire to be the best you aspire to work the biggest games and so I was I was blessed to be able to do that
0: so I want to get just straight to the storytelling in a second but I know this is a writer when stuff goes on in your family and people are like when are you going to write a book about it Ryan why did it take this long to get this book written
3: well, I had to convince uh, people that I could do it. You know, I think that was the biggest thing I, and I've been fortunate to write a couple of books and, and the last one I've done before this one was uh, we had a, a bestseller I wrote with Dale Jr., Dale Hart Jr. And, uh, and my book agent was like, I think if you really want to do this book now, you could do it because I had a little bit of momentum. And so uh, I went to dad and Sam and said, are we ready? And and they were. And so it's uh that that's that, that's been the part of it that's been the best but but there's a lot of pressure too i tell everybody you look to cover that book and the three gentlemen on the cover there uh between the three of us i think we have six college degrees and i barely have one of them so my, my, i want to make sure I, get, <laughs> make sure I get everything right with the Yale law grad and, and the university president
0: uh one of the things that we've talked about in this podcast a lot and i i know is a focus of the book you know we we had we had Pat and Connor and Tim Clockerty on to talk about you know how they ended up in officiating in a couple of cases Connor obviously an ACC football official um, and 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 what it was like growing up being John's son I know that this is a big part of the book but for Ryan and Sam for you guys what's the most what's the craziest part of the, the part that's the most different about growing up an official's child Brian, why don't you lead us off? Yeah, I'll start.
3: Well, I I always tell everybody I learned how to cuss uh, two ways as a kid (laughs) of the 80s. The first was listening to Eddie Murphy stand-up cassettes, and the second was, uh, you know, going and sitting in uh, the end zone and and listening to people screaming to officials during games. Because keep in mind now, when you know, and John knows this, the the tickets uh, that are allotted to the families of the officials, these are not in a luxury box. You know, we're sitting with the townies – you know, in the corner of the end zone. And, and, you know, those are the guys who have been working a third shift all week and just wanting to get to a football game on Saturday. And part of their job, they believed, once they got to the stadium, was to yell at the officials. And so I tell everybody all the time now, you know, Twitter doesn't bother me at all because there's nothing someone can tweet at me uh, that I didn't hear yelled in person, probably at the officials during a a college football game. And one of them was that.
4: I would say... For me, it's um, really feeling like you're a part of the game, uh, especially when you're a you know, 10-year-old kid that, that's you know, barely four feet tall and weighs 60 pounds. You feel like you're a part of the game, right? We um, Being able to walk on the field at the Orange Bowl uh, the day before the game when they're trying to figure out how to run a buffalo across the field without getting anybody killed or, uh, or being at the Rose Bowl uh, again, the day before the game. And, and we're, we're around L.A. and Pasadena, and there's Ohio State fans everywhere. And we're like, man, are the Arizona State people even going to show up? And then we get to the Rose Bowl the day before the game, and there is an ocean of RVs with uh, some double flags flying. And we're like, oh, they're here. Uh, and, you know, going – and uh, this was mom's favorite thing uh, – going and seeing them making the, the floats – attaching these millions of flower petals to the floats at the Rose Bowl. And, you know, not just not just even the Rose Bowl and the Orange Bowl, but, I mean, getting on the sidelines at UVA and, and uh, UNC when we were kids. Um, just that kind of access and really being part of the game was something that our friends in school had to remind us was unusual because we got kind of used to it.
3: Well, and growing up in Raleigh was so huge because it was – you know, dad could not work NC State games because we lived in Raleigh. But as you I mean, Chapel Hill and Duke and Wake and, I mean, they were all right around the corner and, and dad would work scrimmages and practices at NC State all the time. And so we had stadium access to practices and scrimmages and, you know, we'd be over at Carter-Finley Stadium on a weeknight, um, you know, on the sideline talking to Mike Quick. And, you know, we were free we were teens And the, the reason I love the press box is because I snuck up into the – the old double wide in the sky at Carter-Finley, and was like, this is the greatest view I've ever seen, how people get paid to sit up here. And so that, that was, Sam's exactly right. It was just feeling like you were part of the game, even though we weren't playing in the game. When we got to Furman, and when Dad was working at Furman,
4: and I, I was working as a ball boy uh, for the football team, and I remember somebody looking at me, and here I was, this paint-sized high school freshman, and they're like, well, do you know how to do this? And I said, well, sure, I've been doing this for four years. <laughs> because I'd been ball boy in NC State scrimmages for, for that
0: long, Jerry. What was it like, kind of having your kids with you in a lot of these these places that you would go?
2: It was uh, it was a real treat for them, and it was you know I, I always felt terribly guilty that my professional job kept me on the road a lot, and very often I'd have a road trip on a Tuesday, get home on Thursday, pack my football bag. On Thursday night and leave on Friday. And so I was away from the family a lot. So it was a real, was very nice for me to be able to take them with me occasionally and have, have them in the car for a three or four hour ride. And it's been let them, let them meet my friends who are officiating and let them experience what I was experiencing along with me. But, but I think they, uh, it's a real perk for them and perks for me, which just the fact that, that we got to do family things together because I wasn't home barbecuing on Saturday night, and I was somewhere officiating.
0: What were your, what are your two, two or three favorite memories or biggest games, Jerry, that, that stand out yeah. at, the, at the end of, the, of all this?
2: I think, you know, John, when you're, when you're playing, it's like the only play that matters is the next play. The only, the only game that matters is the next game. And the next game is Michigan-Notre Dame. That's what game you work. But at the end, you start looking back and you think about what, what a pleasure it was to – to work all those clumps in South Carolina games and the and the, the Miami Florida State games and the Army Navy game and the Southern Cal Penn State it just just to be a part of uh, some of the most significant games ever played. It was, it was really fun.
0: What was what's what's number one on your list?
2: I, I think the first Army name uh, when I, it was on the 50th anniversary of the running of Pearl Harbor. And um, so there was a big you know we watched all the the, the, the young men and women from the Naval Academy and the Military Academy uh, um, march in. Uh, then we I went to get the Navy captains and came back with the captains and 14 admirals. And the fellow who we went to get the uh, uh, Army team came back with 14 generals and his captains. And we stood at midfield wheel and uh, had a flyover and then they, the president spoke to the world from the Arizona Memorial in, in, in Hawaii and and just... All of that was just such a special day, and then, and then we had the game. But it was uh, being a been part of that celebration was very special with me. My dad was a World War II veteran, so uh, it was special to me.
0: Ryan and Sam, what are what are your each of your favorite stories from the book? What's the one thing that you got in there that that you're that's that's number one on your list? Sam, why don't you go first?
4: Um, I guess it's got to be the referees cap that I wore for several years straight um it was hard for mom and dad to get me to take it off my head to take a bath um and it's funny because this is one of those things that almost missed going in the book you know we were talking about all these great stories of things that happen at ball games and um I was getting ready to move houses and was going through boxes and stuff and I'm coming across all these pictures of me in this hat and then we get to talking about it we're like that's got to be in the book and uh, and so it actually was kind of a late addition to the book. But literally, I wore a referee's cap for years. I mean, school pictures. I have this hat on. And so I tell a story in the book of, of my teacher and my classmates and the school photographer trying to get me to take my hat off to have the school picture. And I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Um, which is a, a stubbornness that I will say um, <clears> that I received through some genetics. Uh, but, um, but also that served me well in other aspects of life. But um, I don't know if, you know, dad was, like he says, he was traveling a lot, you know, with his job and then had this hobby. But when I look back at my childhood, I don't see absence there. I see him there. I see him I do see him uh, grilling out and I, and I see him on the sidelines and maybe I'm on the sidelines or in the stands or coaching my, my baseball teams. But even still, you know, maybe I was just proud of him. And that's why I put that referee's hat on, you know, maybe uh, it was a connection to him when he was on the road. Maybe I just like the hat. Um, but I mean, I even had books where I would draw pictures of baseball teams or football teams or, You know, an army unit in a war that I had made up or something, and they always were wearing a bunch of guys wearing referees hats.
0: (laughs) So anyway, now now was that a was that a white referee's hat or a black field judge type hat?
4: Oh no, no, that was that was that was the black hat like like Dad wore. I I I figured if I put on a white hat, too many people would yell at me.
0: Ryan, what was uh, what was your what was your favorite story that you got into the book?
3: Well, the one I always go back to is um, the very first time that Sam and I had a sideline credential, and we shared it. and And this was uh, Sam alluded to it earlier. This was North Carolina at Virginia in 1983. So I mean, I was I, I think I just turned 12 or 13, and Sam was 10. And we had a sideline pass that we traded off quarters. And and, and again, this is the story that I didn't know. Like I, I've told this story a million times. Last year during all the CFB 150 stuff for ESPN, I told the story a million times that the first time I had a sideline credential, I snapped a picture of Barry Word, the running back of Virginia, diving over the pylon to win the game. I mean, it's a great picture. It's hanging in my office right above me right now. And in the background, you see a North Carolina linebacker who is whiffed on the tackle. Well, he blew me up. I mean, hit me. I mean center chest and stuff flying everywhere and my camera that Santa Claus had brought me was you know on the turf and everybody was worried about me for a second I popped right up I thought it was the coolest thing that had ever happened and I was with all these photographers from the Washington Post and the Richmond paper and, and the NNO and it's like I look, these people are getting paid to be here how can I figure out a way to get a job like this well I've told that story a million times and I did not know until dad told me well, I knew he'd traded off credentials in that game. And Sam, apparently during a television timeout at the age of 10, the officials are out at midfield discussing whatever's going on and knocking down some Gatorade. And all of a sudden, Dad felt a tug on his jersey. And he turned around, and at midfield, there's 10-year-old Sam standing there. And he says, Dad's like, is everything okay? And Sam said, I just want to let you guys know I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> and, and so Dad had to walk him back over the sideline. Now, I did not remember that uh sam being the attorney that he is claims that he does not remember that but uh now it happened because i because it's in writing it's in the book like it's it's right here in the book so whether <laughs> but yeah so, but, but th- that was the coolest thing and to me summed up the experience which is you know that was the first time we had a sideline credential and Dad's last game in 2009. I was on the sideline there for the last couple of minutes, and, and some of the most distinguished college football writers you've ever heard of were like, what are you doing talking to a referee during the game? And I'm like, I've been doing this since I was 12. This is just – this is what we do. And so uh, that's that's quite a childhood right there.
0: Which was the last game? I, I, I remember it. Um, I remember it happening, but I don't remember which the last game was. It was
3: the, oh, 09, it was. Yeah, the 09 BCS championship game.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. No, going Florida
3: out on Oklahoma. Going out on top.
2: Yeah, it was yes. a nice
4: way
3: to go. I was at a
4: Wake Forest game the following year, and it was late in the season. And I had my whole family there. And there were two older fellows sitting in front of us that were obviously, you know, very, you know, uh, well, versed in ACC football, had probably sat right there and watched a, a million games. And the two of them got talking. They said, Well, you know what? I don't think we've seen Booker all year. And the other guy says, Yeah, we hadn't seen McGee all year either. And I tapped the guy on the shoulder. I said, Well, McGee's last game was the BCS championship, Tebow versus Bradford. And the guys look at me and they say, How in the world did you know that? I said, Oh, that's, that's my dad. <laughs>
0: It's uh, it's I, I know, Jerry, it's it was an interesting life and an interesting career. It sounds like uh, an, an interesting and, and very fun way to grow up as well. Thank you guys very much for joining us. Um, the book, again, Sidelines and Bloodlines, a father, his sons and our life in college football. Uh, Jerry McGee, Ryan McGee, Sam McGee. Thank you very much for uh, for taking the time today. Thank you, Luke. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Luke. Well, that was fun. I've known Ryan for a while, just as a colleague. I, I talked to Jerry for a story a couple of weeks ago. Uh, obviously, knew him as an official. It's really cool to see them kind of get some attention, you know, for the the their family and and Jerry's career. That's it's a terrific family, terrific people, and and I know you've uh, you've gotten to know them pretty well, as you said earlier. Jerry's a, a really a good friend. Uh, I find him to be a terrific guy. He's remained
1: humble. He's had a lot of success. He's refereed every major bowl game. But when you talk to him and you get a chance to visit with him, uh, he appreciates uh, everything. He, you know, he started out uh, at a, a high school level and went up through small colleges. And when you read his book, uh, and, you know, he he always felt like uh, you know it was a challenge, and he was never certain that he was going to get to the level that he got to. And uh, as an official, uh, fellow official, I know exactly what he's talking about. Uh, you, you never take uh, anything for granted. Uh, you hope from one year to the next year you, you get a contract. I know that sounds silly uh, regardless of uh, what kind of season you had, but you're always being graded. You're always being looked at. And uh, you just hope the next year is uh, a year that uh, they want you to referee the games. But I, I and Jerry has all those qualities. He is, uh, has very little ego um, and is just a fun guy to be around. And uh, I've had that opportunity. Uh, Jerry was the first guy when I got inducted into the hall of fame. I can remember going back and sitting at the table and he was the first guy that came up to me and put a hand on my shoulder and says, Congratulations, you deserve it. And that's it meant a lot because he had that success.
0: Yeah, I don't know whether you deserve it or not. I think that's the subject of <laughs> well, the entire yeah, podcast. You right. and a lot of other people probably so feel <laughs> that way. Well, that that was that was fun. And and uh, but let's get down to the real business here, which is we've got a basketball season that as
1: as wait, we record wait, wait, this, stop you there. You you're sure we're going to have a basketball season?
0: No, well, we're going to start one. <laughs> we're going to yeah. start one anyway. Yeah. Uh, we're two weeks away as we record this from what should be the beginning of the basketball season, uh, if it goes off uh, as planned. And I think we'll get started as planned. I don't know whether we'll finish it. I talked with uh, Paul Brazo, the ACC basketball commissioner, yesterday about making the schedule and how hard it was during a pandemic and he said, you know, I think making the schedule is going to be a lot easier than actually playing it. Uh, it's just the reality that we're dealing with. But we've talked a lot about teams and players and how they have to deal with it. Uh, Duke is banning the media. That's one of the ways they're dealing with it. Yeah. But what's it going to be like for officials? And, and I know I've, I've talked with people about scheduling, about testing, you know, about how their travel is going to be different, uh, whether guys are going to be flying as much, whether things are going to be more regionalized. Let's, let's start with that, John. What do you think are going to be the two or three biggest differences for college basketball officials this year uh, doing this in in a, in a pandemic? I, I think there's uh,
1: more than just a few, but a couple of the things. Is officials are going to be under the same uncertainty that the teams, the coaches, and everybody else, they're not going to know from week to week. They're going to have a schedule, Luke, but they're – they're not sure that uh, from game to game, whether somebody will come up and, and test positive and then that game being canceled. So if an official is assigned to go to, um, and I'll just, any one of our schools uh, has to go to Virginia and uh, they, they make plans to get in there. And the next thing you know, the team that's coming into Virginia has uh, a couple guys that has the COVID, your trip now, you've canceled but that doesn't only mean you cancel that you're going from another site possibly from Virginia that you have been assigned by the same league because they want to keep you traveling so you you may you you may be going to Virginia and not go to Virginia and now do you go on do you come back and then go to your next site or do you just go to your next site. I mean, that's just one of the small problems. And then do you get paid when they cancel the Virginia for an official? They wanna know whether I, I got to Virginia or I was there and they canceled the game. Am I getting paid? That, that's, that doesn't seem to be, to, in, in, in my opinion, an unreasonable understanding between the league and the referees. But that's just, you know, they're not going to get assignments, I don't think, too far in advance. I made my assignments for the whole year so the officials can plan. I, I don't see how they're going to um, plan much further ahead than a couple, two or three weeks. Uh, it just, I mean, they, the teams have their schedule, but referees um, certainly aren't going to have a, a schedule way in advance. Uh, football didn't. I, I can tell you that football the scheduling right now for a week like Thanksgiving week. So right. that, that, that's just, that's just one of the things, but what happens, I read something, Luke, and first of all, I read your, your piece this morning and uh, about the uh, COVID and, and, and the schedule and the things that, that you talked to Brazo about. And um, I found that very interesting, but I, I did read online where the NCAA dealing with um recommendation on teams, a, a player or a coach or a staff member, if they come down with the COVID, the recommendation is to quarantine staff, all staff, all players, all coaches for 14 days. Luke, uh, I, I'm just sitting here wondering how, how that's gonna work when uh, you're gonna put a whole team in, in, in quarantine for 14 days.
0: No, well, I mean, I just, John, I mean, I think this is one of the things that we're dealing with. There's, there's no way around it. I, you know, I, I would imagine they're actually going to use the same protocols they've used for football, which is, you know, anyone who tests positive is, is, is out for 10 days after, I believe it's after a negative test and anyone who's a close contact has to quarantine for 14 days. You know, that that's hard in football because you lose big chunks of your team. And I think in basketball, you're going to, you're going to see the same things, except you know, you can lose on a hundred man football roster. If you lose 15 guys, it may not be that big a deal. If they're the right guys, you know, if you lose two guys off your basketball roster and you they're the wrong guys, that's going to be an issue, but that's just something I think all sports are dealing with as we try to do this in this environment, that there's no way around that, that you're going to have, if you're going to have positive tests, and obviously the goal is, you know, maintain these sort of soft bubbles. So you don't have positive tests. And anyone who's going to be on the playing floor, whether that's you know, referees, players, coaches, announcers, if they're down there, anyone in that playing floor area is going to have to be in that same tier of you know, strict tier of testing. The idea is not to let any positive tests into the equation and, and proceed like that. But as we saw this week with Tom Izzo, even people who are taking all of the precautions. Can still be exposed to this virus. It's a very tricky virus that way. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be very difficult. You know, the, some conferences have worked in a week between the end of the regular season and the start of the postseason as a wiggle room to, to try to squeeze some games in that might get canceled. The ACC isn't doing that because it plays 20 games and it's having a heck of a time, you know, fitting in the 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 time that it needs. Uh, just in the time it has the games that it needs just in the time it has. So, yeah, it's going to be difficult. There's no question about that. And I think your point to officials, do they get paid for showing up? That's an interesting point, considering a lot of guys who may work 60, 70, 100 games in the normal season with all the non-conference games not being played are going to be lucky to work 40, 50 games. And that's a big hit to the bottom line.
1: I talked to an official that works a lot of games and uh, he's a marquee guy, what I would consider a marquee guy. I talked to him this morning and I mentioned the number of 40 for him. I said, if you could get 40, he said, John, I think that's an aggressive number. He says 40, <clears throat> he said would be an aggressive number, but you know, Luke, one of the things that he pointed out, he says, let's say I go in and I'm assigned a game in the SEC with Doug Schaus and another referee and uh one of them doesn't show up we're going to referee with two guys that's a given we're not calling anybody in he says and then two guys come down with it you can't you can't depend on an alternate staff because they're not being tested like you are you can't just say well um this person lives in lexington so let's call him up and get him over to the gym here so we can have two men you follow me, Luke, because that guy yeah. has that guy hasn't been tested. They're having a lot of questions, and I heard something that was really interesting. And, and one of the officials shared it, that they're trying to develop a chip. Did Brazo talk to you at all about a chip that's in works, where a referee would put a chip in his pocket, let's say, and that chip can give you some information on. Uh, if you were in close contact with somebody that had the virus, and uh, it could help you determine your—I'm looking for the right word—but uh, whether you were in close contact with. Uh, so, so yeah. let's say, let's say you went to a game and, and the, uh, you visited with the scores table, and that person, one of the persons at the scores table, came up with it, it. Chip would tell you whether you were. Uh, in close contact and for how many times? Now, that, that's high tech, but I understand that uh, um, Brazo may have talked to that with his officials about that.
0: Yeah, no, and, and the issue with, with those is, and they were, I believe they were used, something like that was used to a degree in the NBA bubble in Orlando, uh, is you, you need to be around people who are also wearing them. Uh, so if you're in a you know a hotel oh, okay. or, or something, oh. it doesn't you know it doesn't it, 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 they work in conjunction with other bracelets. So in a you know they work really well in a bubble situation where the virus somehow gets in, you can then trace where it came from or at least who was was exposed. Uh, but that that could be a, you know something that's used like at the ACC tournament. If that ends up being a pretty closed loop, uh, that would be one possibility. You know I, the the thing about scheduling one or two weeks out. Uh, is interesting to me john Uh, that's also what i've heard because typically if you're an official you would make a lot of airline reservations and rental car reservations uh, well ahead of time as you said you would do the schedule for the season to enable that what is going to be the what is the travel going to be like this year is it going to be more regionalized will you see the guys doing the lexington omaha Indianapolis, Charlottesville, Miami, Atlanta swings, or is it basically going to be guys driving to games near their homes?
1: Well, uh, good question. And one that I asked a couple referees and I even asked, uh, the supervisor and they would like as much as possible to have officials drive uh, and football wanted to do it also, but you know, there's only a certain amount of that, uh, planning that you can do, Luke, but uh, talking to Tim, my son, and other officials that have been on conference calls, they'd like to to keep the travel uh, off the airplanes, the, the officials off the airplanes as much as possible, but they don't have a lot of referees in Omaha, and they don't have a lot of referees. I'm talking about the Big East, a lot of referees in Milwaukee, and you, you're not going to drive to Tallahassee. So There's going to be some some flying and some hotel rooms, but I have found that the the, uh, planning uh, of trying to get officials to go to uh, sites that are 100, 200 miles uh, from their home site is uh, very hard to do. I, I, I just don't think that you... You you end up seeing the same teams over and over and over. If you're a Raleigh official, you're going to see Duke, State, Carolina, Virginia, and Virginia Tech, even Clemson. You know you can do that, but then you're still going to have to have officials that are northeastern officials get down here to referee games. Uh, you know I just think it's a uh, uh, it, it it's good thinking and, and, and good uh, good. Idea, but I don't think it, it works. Uh, it's it, it just hard, Luke. I, I I I have my reservations with whether they can do that. I I, I just think that there's times where you got to get on the plane and get to a to the site and and uh, have to get a hotel. I uh, I think planes and hotels are
0: dangerous ground. Yeah, I'm with you on that. It's a it's an interesting situation where. You know, a, a team may be able to fly in the morning of a game and fly out after a game the way they the way they do in the you know the NBA preseason. But I, I, officials can't do that. You know, you, no. you this, this this to me is in the sort of, you know, traveling bubble situation that they're trying to create in college basketball. I, I, this is the leakiest point to me, because we know we know from experience from the conference tournaments last year and, you know, the guys who, who had this problem. Officials can get COVID from officiating games and traveling because I, I mean, I know two or three names uh, of, of guys who, who, who were tested positive for COVID college basketball officials, some of whom were reasonably ill uh, yeah. and and, and, and sure. struggled, struggled. So we know that this is a, This is a weak spot. Obviously, people weren't taking all the precautions early last March that they would be now. And we didn't have access to testing, et cetera, et cetera. But still, we know that this can happen. We know that basketball games can be a vector of transmission or at least the environment around basketball games, hotels and whatnot uh, for basketball officials. So that seems to me as something that you would try to do. You would try to keep these guys sleeping in their own beds as much as possible.
4: Right. right.
1: Uh, yeah, I want to get back to something you said. And uh, uh, I'm 100% in agreement with you that everybody has to show more discipline. If we're going to get through these games, teams have to uh, go by the protocol, they have to be disciplined and stay away from gatherings. And, and, and I, I don't trust that we, I mean, I don't trust our young people uh, to do that. Okay. Uh, not, not necessarily athletes, I'm not talking about, but, but who, at, athletes that associate with other people. Um, I watched the Notre Dame Clemson game, and I saw 13,000 students on the field, okay, after they had had to shut Notre Dame down for a while because of the COVID. How did that work, Luke? Okay, we had, we had, we had and that's not the only thing. They had to shut fraternities down. I just don't, understand or or, or believe that uh students are students and and other people including possibly myself you know where i go to and what i do and and uh am i in a golf cart possibly that i shouldn't be in yes okay Uh, am i rubbing shoulders and having a drink after uh, some some play and i'm just i hope i mean it's hard it's something we need to do to to slow this thing down, but I'm not sure that uh,
0: people are paying strict attention to it. Uh, You know, I I think some people are and some people aren't, which is kind of the the state of this country right now. Let let me ask you this, John. I know that one of the the big changes this year, as they try to keep referees as isolated as possible, is uh, the ACC did not make any referees, any of its officials available to teams for intra-squad scrimmages that teams had to go out and get uh, high school and, and small college guys and, and test them and use them. What, what are you hearing, John, about what the testing protocols are going to be like for officials? Uh,
1: from what I understand, they're going to get tested three times a week. Uh, packages are going to be sent to them. Uh, they're the uh, self-test send the results back. Look, I don't know how long before they get a result of their test. But again, I find logistics wise, uh, that's difficult because as you know, officials move around quite a bit uh, and they have to do the self-testing and get it back. But it's three days uh, a week. Uh, I've heard that on from numerous guys. Um, so that, that remains to be seen how effective that'll be. And, you know, but that, uh, that's what they're doing. And, and, uh, again, uh, they got to carry, I guess, carry these testing pack packages with them and send them to the officials, um, uh, have a responsibility to do that. And if they don't do it, I'm sure they'll be pulled if, if they don't, uh, if they don't test like they're supposed to, there'll probably be some, um, repercussions
0: to it. Well, I think that probably covers it, John. I mean, I think we just kind of have to wait and see what happens now. Wouldn't, wouldn't well, in, yeah,
1: uh, Luke, it, it will be interesting. Uh, I think uh, the first couple of weeks, we'll see how it goes and uh, see uh, how everybody adjusts. Not only uh, we're talking about the referees, but, We'll see how the referees adjust to it. Uh, they all want to work. The last thing they want to do is sit on the sidelines with uh, a virus. And uh, I know the ones I talk to say, we're going to keep following the protocol. Uh, look, we, I don't know, maybe, but I think some of the uh, major conferences uh, have. Uh, are in a better situation than some of the mid-majors. Like I'm not sure that the Atlantic 10 who Brian Kersey also supervised is testing their officials three days a week Mm -hmm. or, or the colonial conference who has to have officials are testing officials three days a week. Um, You know, I can only speak for the big East and the ACC. They're going to test three days a week. So are, are you comfortable as a referee in the ACC stepping into a colonial game where you might be refereeing with two guys that haven't been tested, maybe haven't been tested at all? Uh, so, uh, or, or you say, well, I don't want that assignment. Uh, give that assignment to somebody else. So... <laughs> there's a, you know, once we see the season starts, there are going to be some
0: things that uh, have to be ironed out for sure. Well, we shall see, John. I want to thank again the McGee family, Ryan, Jerry, and Sam for joining us. The book is Sidelines and Bloodlines, available uh, on Amazon, wherever books are sold. I know that if you uh, send Ryan a copy down at ESPN in Charlotte, he'll get it signed and send it back to you. At least he's made that offer on Twitter. I guess we'll extend it to all of our listeners. So John, good to talk to you again. Look forward to doing this again soon once the season gets started. And uh, thanks everyone for coming back for uh, another season of whistleblowers and and we'll talk to you soon. John, anything you wanna add? I think uh, now that the season's
1: starting and and like you said, in a few weeks and um, there's gonna be a a lot to talk about once we see how the games are being played out and how the officials are doing. We certainly can get enough information. We can come back and revisit this.
0: That sounds great. We'll do that then. Thanks, everyone, for listening. John, take care of yourself, and and same to everyone else. Stay safe.